You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Ephesians 4. We're going to be in several places today. But I want to start with reading this section, and we'll come back to it and finish up there as well. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. We are three weeks now. This is our third week in a series entitled Back to the Basics. Going back to the foundational things, the things that our church and lives and ministry are built on. We can't be reminded of the basics too much. They're the things that they are foundational. They're the things we learned at the beginning. And, and sadly, all too often, they're the things that we start to bypass and, and think we need to move on from. And we forget those basic foundational things. But let's consider now Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. I'm going to read to chapter 5, verse 2. This is God's Word. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about him and, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. <coughs> Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we're members of one another. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you'd help us now as we look at your word. This is your word, your truth, given to us for our benefit. Father, we need it. We need it more than we realize, more than we feel. Lord, we come in this morning sensing all kinds of needs, all kinds of concerns. Some of us this morning with big anxieties and big worries. And the thing we need most is to hear from you. And so I pray that you would take all of those concerns, all of those anxieties, all of those worries, all of those distracting thoughts, 
and that you would, you would push them aside and focus our minds and hearts and souls on what you have to say this morning because your word is true and it is life. A man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So feed us this morning, Father, from your word. Make it real to us. Help us to see it and embrace it and believe it and obey it and delight in it for your glory and our good. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in this series, Back to the Basics. And we considered in the first week the gospel message. Our main message is our main thing. That Christ has died for sinners. Taken their sin upon himself risen from the dead to give new life to every person that trusts in him not every person that tries hard not every person that does their best not every person that feels a little bit sorry but the person that confesses their sin as against god and puts their trust and their allegiance entirely in him god faithfully forgives it's good news it's gospel and that message is our main thing it undergirds everything we do as a church. If we lose that, we eventually will lose the whole thing because that is the foundation, our gospel message. Last week we looked at gospel power. The thing God, things that God wants to do in us and through us, we can't do ourselves. Just like we can't save ourselves, we can't minister the gospel ourselves. We can't grow in the gospel ourselves. We need Him to do it, and so we are constantly relying on Him, relying on His wisdom, His word, His message, and in prayer, relying on His power. Well, this morning, after considering gospel message and gospel power, this morning I want to think about gospel culture. Gospel culture. Here's the question we're asking here. How can we tell if the gospel has, has really taken root here? How can we tell that it's really taken root, that it's really planted deep, that we're really growing in that soil, producing that kind of fruit? How would we know? Well, we might be tempted to say, well, if the gospel's taking root, I would be becoming a better person. I would just be improving, getting a little bit better all the time. And in one sense, that might be true. The problem with that is there is an abundance of literature, sections at the bookstore, podcasts you can listen to, resources you can use that are, fall under self-help and self-improvement and personal growth, much of which has nothing to do, even though there's wisdom in much of it, has nothing to do with the gospel at all. Ways that you can improve yourself and make yourself better. And we're attracted to that. Give me a tip. Give me a hack. What's a procedure? What's something I can do to uh, establish better habits or become more productive or become a nicer dad or a more thoughtful husband? There's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry to improve myself. But that kind of work doesn't require the gospel. How would we know if the gospel has really taken root? Well, it's more than simply we would becoming better people. It's much more radical than that. Keep a marker here in Ephesians 4. We'll come back. Turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. 
We've spent quite a bit of time in this series so far in Acts. Acts was written by Luke. It's the second part of his two-volume history. Acts is the story of the early church after Jesus returns to heaven. Luke is the story of the birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And Luke 22 is Jesus the night before he's to be crucified. John gives us five chapters on this night. All kinds of things about, you know, I go to prepare a place for you and I'm the vine and you're the branches and Jesus praying for him. Luke doesn't give us nearly that much. He establishes the Lord's Supper and then he records an argument. A disagreement. Look at Luke 22, verse 24. <coughs> it says, A dispute also arose among them. This is the disciples. As to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So, so Jesus, we know from the other Gospels, some of the things he's talking about. Big, big news, big information. I'm leaving. I'm going to send the Spirit. All this different stuff. And at some point in that dinner, the disciples begin to argue about which one of them was the greatest. I'd be fascinated to hear that argument. Like, like I doubt, I don't know. I mean, we don't have a, there's no transcript of the event, right? But I'd be surprised if it was like, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. I, I imagine it was more subtle than that. I think that's Luke's kind of summary. I imagine the conversation taking all sorts of different turns, more subtle, but, but the gist of it is, which one of us is the greatest? Now, we look at that and we think, how childish. Look at them arguing about who's the greatest here in this particular group. But, but I think we have that argument all the time. We have it internally with ourselves, many of us, all the time. I'm looking at you, and I'm looking at you, and I see what you're up to, and I see what you're doing in Facebook, and I see what you're involved in in ministry, and I see the kind of things you do with your family and the kind of activities, and, and I'm constantly having this dispute in my mind, right? Who's the greatest? I want to be the greatest. I don't want to be the greatest. I just want to be great, right? I'm not, I'm not overly demanding. I don't need to be the greatest. I just want to be great. I want to feel like I'm great. And there are all kinds of things that happen in my life things that I see, and so much of it is comparison, right? That I'm having this internal dialogue. I want to feel like I'm great. And I think it's subtle. We don't say those words, but we feel those feelings. I want to feel great. I don't want to be an okay dad. I want to be, and I would kind of like it if people saw me as a great dad. And I don't want to be a passable grade C friend. I want to be what a great friend Ben is. And I don't want to be a mediocre pastor. I want to be a great pastor. And I don't want to be a decent replacement level basketball player. <laughs> well, actually, I would probably aspire to replacement level at this point. But we just want to be great. And think about how much of our insecurity and discouragement comes from 
striving to be and feel and oh we would love it if someone would recognize hey you're pretty great no one teaches us that and we never say it but it's there I want to be great at my job I want to see great in ministry I want to be steamed in this and highly regarded in that and we have that dialogue internally and discourages us sometimes it's not just internal though it's external we don't sit around the table no one sits with their small group arguing about no I'm the best no I'm the best we don't have that conversation but think about how much of the conflict we have the struggles we have with other people has to do with when we start feeling insecure about how good we are or I, th I think she thinks I'm not that great is she saying I'm a bad dad is he saying I'm no good at this think how much of that kind of longing for greatness is she suggesting that I'm a bad mother? I mean, not me, but my friend. And we feel that. Even if it's not there, we're tempted to feel it. Think about how much of our conflict comes from a striving to be great. I don't know what the disciples' conversation looked like, but that's the heart behind it. I want to be the greatest. We're having this argument all the time. It's not how bad people think. It's how everybody thinks. It's the kind of emotion and need that drives us. Look at verse 25. Jesus says to them, you know, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Who is he talking about? Everybody, basically. Everybody in leadership wants to be in charge, exercise lordship, you do what I say, uh, or be the benefactor. And the benefactor is simply like, hey, I'm in charge, look at this great thing that I've built for all of you because look what I do, look at the great work. Herod, right, a tyrant, brutal, kills his opposition, kills some of his own wives, builds massive buildings. I am the benefactor of this people. He goes, that's what, that's what everybody does, but verse 26, not so with you. That's not how you're going to be, he says. That's not how we operate. Look at verse 20. He says, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Isn't the one who reclines at table? What's he talking about? Well, you know probably something of this in the ancient world. Uh, they typically ate. There's a whole other fascinating subject. The world is divided between sitters and squatters. That's a fascinating story, but a different one for today. But in the, in the ancient world, in certain many parts of the world, they, they would sit at a table. The table's very low, and they're, they're kind of reclined at table. And I don't know, maybe they had cushions. I feel like that's a really hard way to eat, but that's something like what they did, right? And so you've, you've got the Lord of the dinner, the Lord of the feast, reclining at his end of the table, and then the table goes down like this, and, and the place of honor is here. You want to be this guy. Look at this meal I have spread for you. And the most honored seats were the ones closest, and it gets less and less honorable down. We see that in another story Jesus tells. You remember the story he tells his disciples? Similar theme, right? He says, this is what people do. They come to a feast like this, and they jump into this seat right here. And then the master of the feast comes along and says, what are you doing way up here? And then he takes them down to the other end, and you feel like an idiot, right? You were too presumptuous. You tried to take the top seat. And Jesus says, no, 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 you, you take the far seat. You sit way down there. And then perhaps they'll come and say, friend, you, know, you, you should move up. 
and you'll be honored in front of everybody. Take the Pharisee, right? So Jesus says here in Luke 22, he says, who's more honorable, the one who's reclined at the head of the table, and he doesn't even say the one at the far end of the table. He says, or the servant, the one who comes up carrying the food, the one who nobody knows their name and nobody cares. They're just the help. And the answer is obvious. Everybody wants to be sitting right here. Everybody wants to be here. Nobody has to teach you that. It's just obvious. Who would not want to sit here? This is where the power is. This is where the respect is. And Jesus says, no. He says, the one that's honored is here, he said. But at the end of verse 27, Jesus says, but I'm among you as the one who serves. Jesus, creator of heaven and earth, ruler and lord of the universe that holds it all together by the word of his power, doesn't come sitting at the head of the table saying, give me what's mine. He says, no, I've come as the one who comes out and serves. I take intentionally the place of lowest honor. And the message to the disciples is clear. That's what you need to do too. Listen, this is mind-blowingly radical for them. It'd be like telling us, you need, to, you need to drop out of that job you have, that job that you went to college for and grad school and have worked for. You need to drop down to a lowly minimum wage job that pays almost nothing, that nobody respects, that serves people in need. You need to move out of your nice neighborhood and move into a very low-quality, low-class neighborhood. You need to sell your new car. You need to buy a Chevette. Just the opposite of everything we all think we're pressed, and maybe you want a Chevette, but the opposite of what most people are after. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Not so with you. Not so with you. Everybody wants to be the guy at the head of the table. Jesus came and calls us to be people who come to serve. And we see how that plays out. Just a few months later, turn over a few pages to, to Luke's other book, back to the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts 2, we looked a couple weeks ago at Peter's sermon here in Acts 2. We see starting in verse 42 that the people, these Christians... Acts 2.42, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And look at this, verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Look over a couple chapters, chapter 4. Similarly, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. That's what we're trying to do at our house with our kids. Right? Everything's mine. Everything's mine. That belongs to me. No, no. This is here we have adults, right? No one said... And here we're not talking about toys. That's my puzzle. That's my car. That's my Nerf gun. We're talking about their possessions, their homes, their stuff, 
the things they've worked to acquire and accumulate and fill their homes and attics and garages and separate storage units with. And they all say, that's not mine, it's, it's for anybody who needs it. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need. That wasn't any less crazy then than it is now. They're taking their stuff. Not their junk. It's not like we'll have a rummage sale and donate it to the deacon's fund. What don't we want around here? No, taking their, taking their properties, taking their possessions, even their homes, selling them, bringing the apostles, saying, I'm sure someone's going to need this. Would you make sure they get it? A radical unity and a radical generosity. See, as the apostles are out proclaiming gospel doctrine, Christ crucified, risen again, the church was living a gospel culture. Living a kind of life together that only the gospel could produce. What Jesus had done in them and for them through the gospel was changing how they lived among each other. And the result is the church has massive, explosive growth and impact. Because that kind of culture is not normal. You don't just find that anywhere in the world. Gospel doctrine is essential, but gospel culture is much more powerful than we realize. I listened to a podcast this last week, and the, uh, uh, it was an interview with a guy who just wrote a book on evangelism. And he said, you know, historically, people grew up in a culture that valued, even if they didn't really believe the gospel themselves, even if they weren't really believers, they looked at the Christian lifestyle and the Christian ethic, and they say, well, that's a good way to live. I may not be faithful or devoted to my church, but the kind of things the Bible talks about and recommends and says you should live like this uh, are good. He said, and so when, when we would do evangelism and try to bring people to faith, we would have to come up with arguments. They would say, well, I'd like to believe in Christianity, but I just don't know about this resurrection from the dead. And you say, well, then we need to, what are some good reasons to believe in the resurrection from the dead? And you give some historical and logical and biblical arguments and try to address their objections. He said, the problem now is it's really, really changed. Now, for many people, the whole Christian lifestyle seems prejudicial, bigoted, particularly in the area of sexual ethics, hurtful to people. People aren't looking at the Christian worldview and saying, oh, that's a good, that's a good way to live. They're looking at saying, how could, I ever, how could I ever live like that? The demands are too high. It asks too much from me. Instead, people are saying, could I live this kind of life? Could I live with people that live this way? And what they need, he said, is not in the first place arguments. Those are important, he said. But what they need is to be around Christians enough to say, this is a remarkable, this is a remarkable group of people. What kind of culture is this? How do people live this way with this kind of... Well, and then there's the question. What do they see when they're among us? What do they see when they visit us in our homes or visit us at our church or come to our event in the parking lot? What kind of culture do they find? Do they find us with the same kind of attitude that Jesus talked about, striving for the highest and first and best place, or do they see this kind of generosity of spirit?
For better or worse, people aren't so much asking, is the gospel true? They're saying, how does it feel? How, what would it be like to live in this kind of environment? Which asks us, what must we define? Jesus gives them the right to ask this question. Think about John 13. He says, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you what? Love one another. People don't know their disciples because we have some good arguments. They say, what, what kind of love, what kind of culture do we find? We need a strong commitment, not just to doc, gospel doctrine, but to gospel culture. We won't take time. I was going to take you to Matthew 5 next to look at the Sermon on the Mount. I won't take time to turn there now. But Jesus begins to lay out in the Sermon on the Mount, what does it look like to live in his kingdom? What is this new culture he's building, right? And he throws out things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. People go, poor in spirit? No, that's not, that's not how it works. Right? Poor in spirit isn't normal. Feeling entitled is normal. Blessed are those who mourn. Or blessed are those who meek. We go through all of them. It's just so radically different. See, what God is doing in the gospel is giving us, in our lives, in our families, in our church, not a way to win at the same game everybody else is playing. How can I be great? But he's giving us a brand new game. And the apostolic church recognized it. They ministered with extraordinary impact. What the New Testament suggesting to us is that we are not going to reach the people God calls us to reach merely by repeating the message. That the most powerful defense of the message God has given us is the culture he's creating through the gospel in us. That our church, our community, this body of believers should look radically different than the world around us that our gospel doctrine must be supported by a strong gospel culture. Listen, we look at the kind of striving that characterized the world in Jesus' day and our day, the striving to be the best and to always be right and to always win and to always put ourselves first and put ourselves at the top. And people will look at that and say, I've tried that, and it is exhausting. That game is not winnable. And so they should see in us a culture, they should see in our church a kind of life, a kind of relationship, as we'll see next week, a kind of family that is enticing because it's different. There, there, brand new game, there I could win. There I could flourish. There I could succeed. So, what does that look like? Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4 where we started. Go through this quickly with you. We could spend a lot of time on a lot of verses here. I want to try to keep this short. But the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about the gospel message. What God has done in us. How he has saved us from sin through the death and resurrection of Christ. And how he changes our future. But he's not changing just our eternal future, but changing our life together. Look at verse 25. Because God is making us into a new people. Actually, go back just for a moment to verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This whole chapter, in fact, the whole rest of Ephesians is to say, look, you've been called by God's grace to believe the gospel. And now you've got to walk, you've got to live in a manner worthy of that. Live like that's really taken root in your life. What does it look like? Well, let's skip ahead to verse 25. He says, therefore... Having put away falsehood, 
Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. A gospel culture looks like an honest culture, a place where people speak the truth. Now, we might say, I think most would say, well, I'm, I'm not a liar. I don't walk around telling people lies all the time. But it's more than that. Look back at verse 15. He says there, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The whole concern is for a kind of growth and maturity. And he says, to do that, we have to speak the truth to each other in love. Do you, do you have somebody like that in your life? What, what would it be like if you had someone in your life who always spoke the truth to you. I don't mean that they're omniscient, that they know everything there is to know, but they're wise and they know you. And they're not afraid to say to you what needs to be said. And you know they only speak those things to you out of love. They're never trying to put you down or put you in your place or set themselves above you. They're not trying to be better than you or above you, but they're also not afraid of you. And how often do we get to, most of us have been it probably at some point in time, maybe often for some of us, where it's like, that, someone needs to tell that person this, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to say it, because you, you know that's not going to go well. Okay? I mean, we've all been there. We've all been that person. We've all, we've all known that person. But, but in this kind of environment, we speak the truth in love. We know, we know that... The, we are speaking to each other out of a desire to see each other grow and mature into all that God calls us and wants us to be. And so we're not afraid to be honest. We're not afraid to say what needs to be said or receive what needs to be said. Why? Because the gospel has already said the truth about us. We are so sinful that the Son of God had to die in order for us to be forgiven. If someone comes to me and says, hey, listen, Ben, I think you have a problem, something you need to work on, the right answer for me to say is, it's actually a lot worse than you realize. It's actually even worse than you know. Jesus had to die for me to be forgiven. This kind of community, this kind of culture is honest. Who doesn't need or want that? Furthermore, verse 26. Be angry. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. That kind of culture is not an angry culture. It's a gentle what does anger come? My pride is offended. I don't like what you're doing. I deserve better. Instead, we have a kind of gentleness. I, I don't need to win. It's characterized by gentleness. Or look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. A gospel culture is not just honest and gentle, it is generous. We saw that in the early church. I'll sell, I'll sell all I have. I'll give the apostles because someone here is going to need it. And someday I may need it from you. And so we are generous. Further, verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. It's an encouraging culture. We speak in a way that builds up and not tears down. Do you ever speak in ways that tear down? Yeah, often we use our speech as a tool to accomplish what we want. 
We'll build up if it helps us. We'll tear down if it helps us. We'll do what we have to do. But here he calls us to a kind of encouragement that builds up. A gospel culture, furthermore, is peaceful. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. It's a kind of peace. Back in the beginning of chapter 1, the first, the fir, or chapter 4, the first thing that he talks about as evidence of the gospel's work is a kind of unity of mind and heart and spirit. Further, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. The work that God is doing in us is rooted in the gospel. Why are we kind, tender-hearted, forgiving? Is that how you want people to treat you? Is there too much kindness, tender-heartedness, and forgiveness in this world? No. Why would we do that? Because God has done it for us. The gospel's creating that kind of culture. And then finally, in the first verses of chapter 5 there, we see a people characterized by love. The gospel culture is a culture where people can flourish. They can really grow. They can really become all that God calls them and wants them to be. I want to be part of this kind of community. A community characterized by honesty, gentleness, generosity, peace, encouragement, forgiveness, love. What if our church was known for this? What if our church was known for this? That's the kind of, I, I don't think that's the church, not just our church, I don't think that's the church's reputation in our culture. That's not generally our reputation. What if that's what our culture was like? All of this is impossible without the work of the gospel in us. We can't manufacture this. It won't work if we pretend. All right, I have to act nice. I've got to act encouraging. What should I say? Mark's here. I should say something nice to Mark. Um, I like your bright yellow truck, Mark. Very nice. Oh, Charlie's here. I can't even think of anything. No, I, you know, right? It's, we can't act. We can't pretend to love, pretend to encourage, pretend to care. It's got to be real. It's got to really grow up out of the gospel. We planted a big area of our yard, kind of got uh, Brian and Christina Crawford came over and cleared a bunch of our tree line, all this brush and vines and stuff. And so we planted this grass, and then we crossed our fingers, right? I hope the grass grows. It was a bunch of work. And the other day we were out there doing some other stuff, and I said, hey, Kelly was in the house, and I said, go get mom, go get mom, right? And to come out and said, look, and you could see out in the middle, you could see this, this tender little grass shoots growing up. It's like a mother with her baby. You grow little grasses. You can do it. Mama loves you, you know. It's, right? The seed that produces this kind of gospel culture is the gospel itself. We can't pretend. We can't make it happen. We can't as an exercise of our will. Our will is too self-focused, too proud, too concerned just with me to make it happen. What we need is the gospel to do this in us because the gospel tells us the truth about ourselves. We really are messed up. It's really worse than you realize. And we have been loved and forgiven in extraordinary ways. Our future is better than we realize. And so I don't need to prove something here. I don't need to sit at this seat because someday in God's kingdom, my place will be glorious. 
And so will yours if you're in Christ. I don't need to, I don't need to be at the top of the heap here. I could be the servant here. What if that's what our church was known for? What if that's what people thought of when they thought of Christ in this church? We need gospel doctrine. We need the truth. We need the message. People won't come to faith without hearing about Christ crucified for sinners and risen again. But the thing that tells people that's true is not apologetic arguments most of the time. The big apology for the truth of the gospel is the culture it produces in the lives of God's people. And so we need to be relentlessly concerned with that. So we have to press into the truth of the gospel over and over and over again to understand ourselves, to understand how we relate to one another, and then we need to pray. We need to pray and ask God to do that glorious work in us. Let me pray for us now. Father, I pray that you would, you would work this kind of culture into who we are as a church. The easiest thing in the world, the most natural thing for us is to be self-focused, self-preoccupied, self-exalting. And we can't fix it. We don't in ourselves have the resources to take that away. But the gospel tells the truth about us. We're really sinful. And yet we have the power to change because you've given us your spirit. So that the old self has to come off and the new self has to go on and we need to be renewed constantly in our minds. And Lord, we, what I'm asking for here is that you would give us a supernatural love for one another that would commend the gospel to this community you've put us in. That our church, that our families would be characterized by this kind of love, this kind of concern, all these virtues of encouragement and honesty and peace and all of these, that, that you would grow those in us. Not so we can feel great about ourselves. We, we don't want it in a self-righteous, look how awesome we are kind of way. We want it to be real. We want it to be authentic. We want it to grow up out of, I don't need to worry about me because Christ has already taken care of me and promised to do so forever. Such that it frees us up to worry and concern ourselves with each other's needs rather than our own. Lord, if this happens here, it will be a miracle. And so we're asking you to do it. Impress the need on our hearts. Give us much love. We need much grace. I pray that you do this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.